Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS issues. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and since 2016, Monica Shimonik has been coaching moms and dads as they navigate through the treacherous waters of the family law racket. Aside from workshops, which helps the specific problems, her 12-week signature course, The Best Interest of the Parent, uses a four-quadrant model to create a robust healing and empowerment system so that you control the narrative of your life, not the state. And this is a very excellent um, very excellent course. And her coupon code to get 10% off the course is slam the gavel. And that will be included in the podcast notes as well as if you want to support the show, buy me a cup of coffee. Right now I have Michael Sayan back on. The last time he was on was May 20th. And we discussed, uh, he enlightened us on the historical evolution of corruption within the family court system. From the 1857 matrimonial clause in England, women wanted the right to divorce and parliament agreed. And that took the authority away from the church. This action found its way to the United States shortly after. The evolution of family courts by design was originally through civil courts called special interest courts. However, Troxel versus Granville made family court regarding parents' rights a federal issue. This had a big impact in the family court system. The government began to infiltrate the family home. The object was to take the child out of the family home and incentivize with Title IV-D. But today, we're going to discuss woe to the wedding band. <laughs> and he's going to give us a history on the wedding band. So I welcome you back, Michael. Thank you. Hey, how are you doing? Can you hear me okay? I can hear you good so far. Great. Okay, great. So um, I'm going to tell, my, uh, I've been, I was on May 20th last time, and uh, let you know a little bit about my, my background, is that uh, I'm an author on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, the doctrinal issue within the church. Um, this has been a controversial issue since the early 380s, um, and uh, it's still a controversial issue today. Uh, I studied, one of the persons I studied with is a person called Dr. David Einstone Brewer. Dr. David Einstone Brewer, or Dr. I.B., uh, David I.B., he actually is the senior research fellow for Tyndale House in Cambridge. It's the third most prominent Greek library, and uh, as well as they have a university attached to that as well, I believe. Uh, and uh, he actually was a Christian who studied under rabbinics, so he had a doctorate in rabbinics. Uh, rabbinics is going to be what you would hear about the rabbis, so the Mishnah, the Talmud, uh, the Torah. Um, he is considered a professional on that, and he's considered a professional on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, looking at it from an ancient Israel or a Jewish perspective. Uh, on the Jewish perspective, we have something called the written law, then they also have the oral law uh, traditions that were passed down. Uh, the Mishnah and the Talmud, what are these, a lot of these were, were a collection of uh, rabbinical teachings that were uh, written down that they uh, uh, that they actually passed down to the Jews. So we get a lot of our marriage practices from uh, the, the Jewish marriage ceremony. The actual wedding band itself is a form of the bride price. Uh, the, the wedding band originally started, the history is actually a little shady. So if anybody tells you they know the history of the wedding band for sure, the chances are they probably do not. Uh, the history band, as far as what we can find out, is that it, there was a, uh, it was possibly more likely invented in the pagan culture 
um, and then brought over later into Catholicism and the Jewish religion, um, picked up this tradition of the wedding band. Uh, the wedding band was, if you notice, when, you, when a gentleman asks a girl to marry her, he used to give the bride price to the father. As women started getting more independence, the bride price was paid directly to the woman. And it was in the form of a wedding ring. And that's how come you'll hear, uh, you'll hear doctrines or kind of sayings that, hey, you know, if you ask uh, one of the things on a, on a wedding ring or engagement ring, is a support? worth a certain amount of money some people say like a years of salary or maybe three months of salary this was based on deuteronomy 22 um deuteronomy 22 actually talks about uh, as well as exodus 22 16 17 these passages talk about a standardized virgin bride price um, and it was a pretty much a standard price and so that was kind of the foundation of the wedding ring the wedding ring was originally started as, well, they, again, they believe as a pagan practice. Then it was brought over um, to the uh, Catholic Church, again, as, a, as the bride prices slowly changed from being unilateral, where the potential groom would pay the father, to actually bilateral, where the man would go directly to the girl and ask permission. A lot of this was a, the, the, cult, the Roman culture in the first century uh, had a lot to do with the switching over. Now, the wedding ring itself um, came to being, they believe, around somewhere between 600 to 900 AD. Um, and then it was picked up by the Catholic Church and Judaism sometime later. Uh, the, the record shows is that actually the diamond on the ring, uh, the Jews don't have a diamond on the ring. The Jews have a simple um, golden band. Uh, the diamond ring was actually designed by a king, or actually uh, formulated by a king, who asked that uh, because he was obviously very rich and trying to impress the girl he was trying to marry, he actually asked that, the, uh, that a diamond be put on the ring itself. Um, and so he was the one that we actually accredit uh, the diamond ring. And that's how come you'll see many of our laws today, both English law, American law, and other laws, that um, the... If the man breaks the engagement, it's a form of betrothal. If the man breaks the engagement, because he's um, because these rings are worth so much money, um, that they actually usually have uh, a state law regarding who gets the ring. So if the man breaks the ring, usually by law, um, the the woman gets to keep the ring. But if the woman breaks the engagement, then a lot of times by different state laws, the man gets to get his ring back. Uh, and again, because this is all looked at as a form of modern day bride price. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So the history is actually fascinating. Um, and then a lot of people believe that the historical significance on the ring that it's, uh, that it's on had something to do with the actual main vein from the heart going down the left arm uh, into, the, uh, into the, the, the finger that we, we, we wear our rings on today. So they believe that um, the ring was a direct connection to the heart. That mm -hmm. is, um, we don't know if that that's, has that much basis on truth, but that was the folklore um, that the, the, the reason why the ring was worn on a particular uh, hand or, or reason. Now, before that, before the 900 or the first century, uh, or excuse me, the, um, uh, the 11th century, um, is that uh, you know, obviously there was not wedding rings. Um, wedding rings was, and so 
the a lot of times a woman might wear a veil um but uh that's a come you'll see in the bible in matthew 5 like 26 through 30 you'll see that if a man looks at a woman in lust he commits adultery in his heart um because remember when you looked at a woman in lust you really didn't know if she was a married woman or not um and so a lot of that was actually a reference to um that if you just look at a, a random woman in lust, you could be looking at someone's wife because there really wasn't that significant um, outward showing that we would have that, uh, that the woman belonged to the man. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, what we do today is we have, um, when a person is married, we, and generally in general practices, we actually usually credit the man as having additional responsibility um, so it, it is typical in most churches for a man to actually have a position of authority in the church. Usually he had to be married. Now you'll see this and uh, there's a, a controversial case because the Sanhedrin um, that Paul was a part of in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that he wished all men to be as him and he was referring to the unmarried state. Now, according to the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So Jewish laws put a lot of emphasis on um, on a man who was uh, who was married. They gave them additional responsibility. He was looked at as being um, responsible. Uh, he was looked at as actually obeying Jewish law. Um, and so even in today in our churches today and in culture today, um, simply wearing a, simply being married or wearing a wedding band, you're, you're traditionally treated a little bit different than somebody who doesn't wear a wedding. And that has a historical significance to um, the Jewish law of actually requiring men um, in certain positions to actually have the be the husband of one wife. Okay. Wow. Okay. So, did you have any uh, any questions as far as with that? Well, that's like a lot of history. So, when this king wanted a a diamond in the band was he thinking of two rings or just the one wedding band with the diamond in it yeah so the wedding band so you'll find out that the actual engagement ring and the wedding bands are, are two separate things right but um in jewish law the wedding band is the only thing that that's given uh you'll find in some cultures that the um uh that only i believe only the woman wears the ring not the man um, and a lot of that had to do with polygamy as well. Um, so men were allowed to, a lot of, so a lot of bride price cultures or unilateral cultures, men were allowed to have several wives at the same time. So I believe that a lot of those cultures uh, that you'll see those uh, polygamy practice, um, the man doesn't wear the wedding band, if that makes sense, just, just the woman possibly in that culture. So um, yeah, the and then the so there's there's a lot of historical significance, but the actual engagement ring, as far as the church, the Catholic Church has uh, uh, has taken that practice and made it basically into their I believe it's canon law, but it's definitely into their uh, their um, their doctrinal status is that uh, they definitely believe that the diamond engagement ring is the form of the bride price. And then the wedding rings given later are supposed to signify the marriage. So the, uh, the diamond ring, when it was originally given, you were considered, like in today's culture, we really don't give a lot of credit to somebody who's engaged because we realize that really engagement usually has no legal bounds except for um, if, if the engagement's broken, who gets the ring. Um, however, uh, in other cultures, the engagement was taken much serious 
Um, and so as a form of the bride price, if you can imagine a diamond ring being a form of the bride price, um, it pretty much if you were engaged, you were pretty much considered, um, uh, you're pretty much considered married or on your way to be married. And that engagement was very hard to break. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yep. Yep. So, so anyways, long story short, but different cultures may have wedding bands. Um, different cultures may have one wearing the wedding band, one not wearing the bed wedding band. Different cultures might have which, uh, which hand to wear the wedding band. And when some of them might have engagement rings and other ones not. Again, it has a lot to do with just how culturally, how it was kind of brought through because most marriages um, were handled as a cultural practice and then recognized by the legal authority. Um, so uh, if you were uh, like Sharia law or you would go through Jewish orthodoxy, if you were uh, in, in Israel and then, you know, to, uh, and then up until 1857, it was handled through the Church of England. Um, and then those practices were basically brought over to really to the church in America. Um, and then it really wasn't until the marriage license happened. The marriage license in America was a form of the, um, uh, of the authority taken away from the church and given to the state. It was actually a, a representation or a mirror effect of the 1857 clause of England, where parliament took authority away from the church. Um, so that was basically the, the, the marriage license. Once you license something, you no longer, it's no longer considered an inalienable right. It's actually considered a privilege, such as driving a vehicle, um, having a, uh, you, have to, you have to apply to get a driver's license. So because it's licensed by the state, um, driving is uh, no longer considered a right, it's considered a privilege because the state has the ability to say no. Now, marriage licenses were originally designed around 1910, individually by different states, around 1910 to 1917. Um, and these, a lot of the states wanted the ability to prevent whites and blacks from marrying each other. So the marriage license was actually designed by the state to try to um, control black and, uh, interracial marriages. Then eventually that was used to try to control um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases within marriage. But that was the original intent of the marriage license was for the state to gain control over these because um, before then it was pretty much considered a private contract. Now it's pretty much considered a state contract. Okay. Or contracted state. Well, I was um, I was I, I wish I would have taken a screenshot, but remember I was talking to you the other day and someone was referring to the wedding band as Patrius or uh it was latin and i can't think of the other word right so uh, patris patris has uh is actually taken from the word patir uh patir is a latin word for father so a lot of times when you see the word patris uh or patir or different forms of the root word it's basically just saying that it's a male dominant society uh so i uh, did not get a chance to look up the, 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 the Patris terms that you referred to, uh, but more than likely it was just the um, added responsibility as well as in some cultures, the added necessity for a man to be married. So you, if you were, and we, we a lot of times we know this for women, um, women were considered, um, if they were not married at a certain age, they were considered, oh, I forgot the term. Um, Old maid? Yeah, it was considered old maid, but there was actually a term that, uh, and we see this on the, uh, 
uh, oh, there's a famous movie where uh, the Christmas movie, uh, but basically considered, uh, you're considered if a woman wasn't married by a certain age, um, she usually got some kind of title of, of um, you know, just being degradation, you know, basically saying, basically she was an old maid at that time. Now, um, if you remember the, the movie Fiddler on the Roof, now, The Fiddler on the Roof, the movie, which is a famous movie about Jew Jewish history, he had, uh, it was his name was Tevi. Now, Tevi had an older daughter, and she, in the movie, said she was 20 years old. And the mother, when the older daughter... Oh, you're breaking oh, up. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Uh, I should be getting in a better area, so let me know if I get back on. <laughs> Can you hear, am I still breaking up? I can hear you. Okay. So Tevia had, a, like I said, they had a, 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 with, um, oh, the mother's name was uh, Idol. Was. And so they had a, a, an older girl. Now, the oldest girl was, was just about 20 years old. And she was not married yet. Now, in the particular movie, she was uh, looked down upon because she was looked at as being almost out of that marriageable age. Um, uh, because as a marriageable age, you had to be, um, you had to be really had to be a virgin, um, because when bride prices were based upon a woman's virginity and even Deuteronomy, which a lot of people don't know is in Deuteronomy 21, I believe, uh, Deuteronomy 21, um, if a, um, if a woman was married and there was a bride price paid and the man actually says that, um, he finds out on the wedding day that she was not a virgin. She was actually, the girl was actually brought to her father's house and she was stoned to death for playing a harlot under her father's roof. Um, and that's if the, if the man paid the virgin bride price. So the, um, the virginity was considered, and you'll also see this in the Old Testament, that, um, that the women um, wear uh, certain uh, cloaks of, uh, to, to show that they were virgins. Um, so they, and you'll see the story of one of David's um, uh, daughters uh, she was raped, and it said that she no longer wore that the cloth of virginity anymore um, to symbolize that she was a virgin, and she mourned the rest of her days. Uh, so virginity, like I said, it was really based. So when when girls were, you know, so girls were a marriageable age, even in the movie with Fiddler on the Roof, um, you're dealing with probably historically and culturally uh, girls between the ages of 16 and 20. After 20, they were considered a, an old maid, right? So, um, uh, and we don't have that in the culture today. The average culture, the average age here in a Western world that people get married is steadily rising. I believe it's right now, it is around 25 years old for the woman and 26 or 27 years old for the man. Now, the recent statistics, it's been rising every year. Um, and that reason why it's raising is because of the cohabitation. Now, uh, which is important for a lot of people to understand when they look at divorce and remarriage statistics, the reason why divorce and remarriage statistics, and this will, this will kind of play a part in, in what you're you know, asking about today, but uh, in the marriage statistics, statistics, what happened was 1969, um, woman was basically given the, the right to initiate a divorce without proving uh, that there was any kind of abuse. That was the original intent of the no-fault divorce, unilateral no-fault divorce so that, that the woman would not have to prove that there was abuse. It kind of gave her, um, because on trying to prove there was an abuse was actually considered very hard to do. Um, so uh, the, uh, it, it was originally designed by the women's group, so they wanted to be able, the women to be able to free themselves without having that necessary proof. 
so um, in, let me see here. Oh, I forgot where I was going to go on this. Um, let's see if I can remember real quick. Um, the statistics. Um, they said, oh, yeah. Thank you. So statistics is 1969, women's got the right to initiate divorce. It was actually the last state to give the right for a unilateral no-fault divorce was actually, people don't know, it's York. It was in 2012. So it wasn't in 2012 until the final, the last state actually had unilateral no-fault divorce. Um, the actual interesting about unilateral no-fault divorce really quickly is in New York is the, um, the international um, national organization of women wanted to give women uh, and have, give state laws to be able to write to initiate divorce anytime they wanted. The actual um, New York charter of the National Organization of Women fought against the um, National Organization of Women. And the state of, uh, the National Organization of the State of New York actually said, no, we don't want women to have that unilateral no-fault divorce. So they actually pushed against, and you can well see it's well-documented, um, but they're the ones who actually pushed against unilateral no-fault divorce was the actual women of New York. Now, the um, uh, statistics, when we look at divorce and remarriage, we see in, from 1969 to 1980, we see a, a, a spike. Um, divorce, three, uh, three to four times as much divorces as there were before 1969. And then in 1980, we see a sudden decline of divorces. Now, people thought, well, hey, maybe it's just that initial kind of um, that new car smell kind of weird wore off and people are going to get back to a responsible society. But that's actually not the case. In 1980, cohabitation increased 900%. So yeah. when the oh, cohabitation increased 900%, uh, men and women were still having children out of wedlock, or sorry, they're still having children and they're still living together, but then they would break up and this wouldn't be registered as a divorce. So we see a, we see a, a, uh, a, a quick decline of divorces in 1980 to till today. But the, the only reason that is, is because more people are having children out of wedlock. Um, right now, the, uh, in the black culture, um, black women um, are having children out of wedlock at alarming 40%. So 40% of children that are born in the, uh, the black community are born out of wedlock today. Um, and this is, but it's all the cultures really in the Western world are, are following this route. Now, because of this, the courts had to say, okay, how do we balance men's rights and women's rights um, with the increased number of divorces and also the increased number of children being born out of wedlock? So as the child was no longer, this is important to understand, when you're looking at before 1850, women, children, and slaves were under property rights, both in America and under English law. This was called, under common law, it was called coverture law. Coverture laws, that means that the woman, when she was married, she actually legal, be, legally became an extension of her husband. So she lost her legal identity in marriage. Now, when she lost her legal identity in marriage, she no longer had full constitutionally protected rights. And so the women's suffrage movement in the 1830s to 1850s in the United States, the women said, well, we want our constitutional rights. Now, what, the, what happened was the slaves were looking at uh, having constitutional rights because they were not considered people, they were considered property. And so since they were not considered legally people, they were not able to have full constitutional rights as well. Now, children were under what was called part and parcel 
of the parents' constitutional rights. Before, it was always considered under the pet tier. It was always the, uh, and ever, whenever there was divorce, almost 100% of the cases before 1850, the father always get one, got 100% custody of the children. Uh, when the tender years or the younger years doctrine happened, the, the mother got 100% custody of the children after a divorce, but she only got it for a short period of time um, up until she, the child was weaned, which they believe was about four years old. Then after four years old, she had to return the child back to the husband for 100% custody. Um, and because of this, divorce rate was actually very low, both in uh, England as well as the United States until, uh, until the 1850s where the women wanted to, they believed that part of the independence was also being able to express themselves sexually independently as well. Um, and so we see the, you know, the, 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 the roaring, I think it's the roaring 20s, the roaring, roaring 30s in, uh, in America, um, is that uh, we really have the women uh, starting to express themselves sexually. Um, and this was a form of um, women no longer be considered housewives, but being able to basically um, being able to express their, their freedom or their constitutional rights. Um, so, and I know this is a big history lesson, but uh, it's important to understand that what happened was the slaves were given constitutional rights before the women. So the slaves were given constitutional rights when we had the Civil War. So we have what was called the Slave Amendments. The, uh, I believe it was the 13th, 14th, and 15th, or 12th, 13th, and 14th Amendment. Um, and then what happened was the women actually, with the slaves and said, well, they get to have constitutional rights. We want constitutional rights. And part of the way for women to get constitutional rights was able to get the right to vote. So the, for a woman to have the right to vote, that was her way of actually establishing um, constitutional rights, either in the marriage or out of the marriage. And when the women got the right to vote and they were considered in common law started to change both in England and America, the child was no longer considered under property law of the father, eventually switched over to being property law of both the mother and the father. Then eventually, what we have today is that the, the children are part and parcel of the, of the mother or the father. And what they're considered is they're cons considered uh, individual entities having their own constitutional rights. And um, because they have their own constitutional rights, the courts now, since around, since you allow no fault divorce and, and the women beginning really third, uh, the third wave feminism, children are now getting the, uh, being constitutional rights in the courtrooms. So you'll hear that a, ch a child will get a voice um, or have a guardian ad litem uh, appointed to them. Uh, and they're supposed to be able to have their own individual voice on maybe who they want to live with. Um, this is part of the child's con uh, the courts practicing child constitutional rights. Um, so you're seeing that the the um, kind of the dismantling um, of the family unit, where um, children and women were under property rights of the father, is now the women have 100% constitutional rights, men have 100% constitutional rights. And children are fastly getting 100% constitutional rights. Now, the problem with this really quickly is that with the children getting constitutional rights, the state's saying, well, ch children don't, are not mature enough to practice these constitutional rights. So the state is stepping in under the, uh, under the best interest of the state or what was considered uh, state interest. And they're jumping in and they're saying, well, if the child can't make a decision, we will make a decision for them. 
So we'll appoint them a guardian ad litem or an attorney, um, and the state will start making decisions for the child because the child lacks uh, maturity to actually practice their constitutional rights. So what children do is they quickly, after a divorce or a custody issue, um, children become wards of the states um, as the states start practicing what was called the parents' portrayed doctrine. And uh, the, the nation is a parent of the child. And they're starting to say that these child has uh, individually constitutional rights. Now, um, these rights really quickly are going to be very important because when you look at international law under the U, uh, the conventions of the rights of the child under the UN, so the UNCRC, um, the, women, uh, the children's rights or the best interests of the child um, is considered basically it, it, their own individual rights. Um, and the, the rights of the child is actually according to UNCRC, this is international, really international treaty law, um, children are considered to have more rights than their, than their parents themselves. And this is part of the, the state really coming in and becoming parents of these children. Jeez. Well, this is a le uh, history lesson. Keep going. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, yeah. So what happens is that even in churches today, if you, see, if you go to a church, most churches, they don't like to um, have you be a pastor or an elder. Um, because one of the things, that, and you'll see in 1 Timothy 3, um, that it says that the, for a man to be an overseer or an elder of a church or a deacon of the church, he had to be the husband of one wife. Um, a lot of the Catholic Church or in a lot of the churches started saying, well, that means that he has to be married. He has to be a husband of one wife. Um, and so because of that, uh, there was kind of a doctrine that was pushed in the early ages that um, for a man to have a position of authority within the church, um, he had to be married. And they wanted that because they wanted to be able to show that he was responsible. Uh, and it probably maybe even had a lot to do with the uh, sexual, the recent sexual falls of single men, uh, even married men, right? We have, uh, we have on the news today where all these evangelists and pastors are starting to get involved in the sexual scandals. Uh, Rabbi Zacharias was the most recent one. Um, and, uh, but uh, a lot of pastors is now as sexuality really becomes a God in itself in the Western culture. And we're practicing a form of, um, of humanitarian where we actually worship the human body. You'll see this in uh, Romans 1, where it says that, that people started worshiping their own bodies and God gave them their due. Um, and these are talking about men who are sleeping with men and women who are sleeping with actually beasts or animals. Mm -hmm. uh, so women were not sleeping with women. Women were sleeping a lot of times with animal, that perversion. And then men were sleeping with men. Um, and then this was actually addressed in both Leviticus law as well as Romans 1. Um, and uh, as Western world, we have become a sexualized culture. And because of that, we're seeing now, we're seeing that children rape is, is on the increase, especially as more of these children become wards of the state. They're put into foster care homes. Uh, we have over 500,000 children in the foster care home. Uh, care in the United States, and it's even worse in Europe. Um, and um, the majority of these kids are, um, are easy sexual targets for, uh, for, for, um, for people who either adopt them, adopt them and, or the, the kids that they adopt or the children are getting sexually abused in these foster homes uh, at alarming rate to an, a point that the actual, that many um, 
human service agents or child protection service agents are actually are on record as saying that we knowingly take a child out of a medium, you know, out of a, out of a bad home and we put them in a worse environment. And that's just because the state doesn't have the room or availability to take care of these children. And because of the state wanting to take, you know, wanting to control because the state government is always against we the people, right? Remember, it's always the government mm -hmm. versus we the people that balance the power. Um, is that uh, is the, the government always wants power or money or control. And the, uh, for the first time in history for the past hundred years, the states um, really now have uh, full control over the family unit as well as privacy rights. Um, being able to tell your child what religion that um, the child's gonna be raised in, um, forcing children out of homeschooling, put them in a public school environment. Um, and this is, all, this is all a way for the government to start gaining control of the family unit in the, in the guise of protecting the children, right? So um, again, this is a this is a huge hip pitfall um, all over the world. Uh, we're seeing that not just we're seeing this not just in America, but we're seeing this all over the world, where the government now is going. We hear about the the uh, in China we had the um, one child um, one child per family laws that was a while uh, that happened for a long time. Now, if it, if a family had more than one child. They either gave that child up for adoption or there was an abortion or something, but they, they, the one child nation in China for many years, as China tried to control not only its population, um, but just to control um, the family unit. And so uh, this is always historically, the government has always tried to, to gain control of the family unit. A lot of this was actually designed through what was called Marxism in 1917 in Russia under Marxism, um, uh, Russia was given the first unilateral no-fault really laws on the record books, uh, and that was designed in 1917 under Marxism, because Marxism realized that the demand, dismantling of the family unit gave the government more control over the family and more say of the family, uh, as well as more taxing and, and, and uh, just really overall control. So the government is really not concerned as a whole on the the structure of the family unit. Mm -hmm. If you notice, um, the Trump actually tried to, um, I believe he was going to appoint, he didn't, he didn't say who he was gonna appoint, they were thinking he was gonna appoint his daughter, Ivana, Ivanka Trump, uh, as actually looking into the foster care system here in America, because it's come to a point where it is completely out of control, but the state, um, uh, the states and the government are really not concerned about the, um, the healthy family unit, because again, the more the dismantling of the family unit, historically, the more control the state or the government has over those families. It's a part of divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. So do you have any uh, questions for me or any more questions on that or? Well, I mean, as far as, you know, all these kids in foster care, you know, um, there's, uh, how do you think this will be fixed? <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be fixed. It's not going to be fixed. So what it's going to take you, it would, uh, the government, as you, as you find out historically, the government, once they have authority, right, or power over something, they don't let it go. They just don't, they don't trust the, um, the, we, the people. So they'll, they'll hold on to that. So in the guise of 
protecting the people, right? They're taking away its rights. Now we saw that when the COVID happened, right? We see the COVID where the uh, World Health Organization came in and says, you know, under the guise of protecting, you know, protecting the people, they took away all their constitutional rights and all their rights. Um, and so, uh, and there was a big problem with that, but it was all under the guise of what, what we would call is a compelling state interest. Again, compelling state interest, the states or the governors can do these uh, executive orders to protect the community. But even when they tried to do that, right, they, as, as you know, in the COVID, they were very slow on ending those executive orders, right? Those executive orders for mask mandates and all those things and vaccinations, all stuff that's kept on getting extended, 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 because it's a good example how the government, once it has control of something, it doesn't give that control up without a fight. Um, so the only way for, um, uh, for the family unit to start becoming a unit again is we have to get the government out of the family home. And the government's not going to do that unless we have a fight. And that would have to be through federal, uh, through the federal courtrooms under deprivation rights under the color of the law. And as the, uh, federal, as the family court is now getting federalized because we have now over over 100 uh, Supreme Court cases that actually deal with um, custody and, 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 and child care and, and uh, mostly had to do with, um, uh, with, the, uh, with the monies that was to be split up um, for the, uh, regarding the children of divorce and custody matters, like uh, really said, Title IV deity. Um, so a lot of that was under that, but um, yeah, so now it's the government won't give this up. And you're going to see either one of two things. You're going to see uh, rioting in the streets, something like we see the Black Lives Matters. Um, and that probably won't happen because uh, as a whole, society has become so weak and government has become so strong that um, because in uh, the government way to remember, the government way to be able to control everything is they don't want the the, the we the people to have the ability to uh, to be able to rebel so the very first um, thing historically that we see on governments as there is a challenge to their authority is that the government will come in and uh, take weapons uh, and contraband right and so we're seeing that we're starting to see that happen where the states are starting to make it a big issue for uh, for people to have their second amendment right to be able to own weapons the reason why is because as the government has become powerful and the people are starting to push back, um, uh, and the capital riots was a really good example of that, is that the government is going to really do by force be able to persecute as many people as they can, and they're going to try to use these events to be to take away people's rights to have uh, to have a gun or to have a weapon to defend themselves, because the uh, the Declaration of Independence says uh, protect ourselves from enemy, foreign, and domestic. Mm -hmm. And it gives we, the people, the right to defend your home if somebody's trying to take your wife or children away um, without due process of law. Um, and, but the, that's what's happening today. And that the Second Amendment right was to be able to protect your home, you know, the King's Castle, because they're the castle, you know, the King's Castle, um, for the man to be able to defend his inalienable rights to his wife and children. So historically, it's always been that the, the man was given that Second Amendment right to protect anyone, government, uh, government official, police, anyone from going into his home and taking away his children, considered an inalienable right. Mm -hmm. um, but now because of fear, um, uh, you know, police and child protection services 
they're um, they're taking away children without uh, without um, without warrants. Um, mm -hmm. They're going into the home by force, and their idea is like, hey, let's take the kid first and give a um, give a uh, uh, a due process later. However, the Constitution protects us to have due process first before any of our rights are taken away or any of our children or family or anything's taken away. We have that right of due process first. However, when it comes to child protection services, uh, these emergency orders get signed by the judge. They're just called uh, rubber stamp. And uh, the police and, you know, uh, and the child protective services or human services uh, are going in and without due process, they're going in and they're taking their most people's most valuable commodity, their children, they're taking their children away. And once they have their children, then it's a form of blackmail. So due process becomes a form of blackmail, where unless you do what we say, we won't give you your child back. So it reverses the 14th Amendment right to due process, the, the procedural due process. And again, there is there's no overturning this except for a act of the United States Supreme Court. But the United States Supreme Court, um, because of uh, what they claim the 11th Amendment, um, uh, preventing people from the ability to sue not only their state, but other states, um, they're claiming that um, somebody can't sue a state um, unless they get permission from the state. And the federal government, um, because of domestic relations exemptions and Rooker-Fieldman doctrines and, uh, and Young a lot of other doctrines, uh, the federal government is refusing to uphold people's or protect people's constitutional rights in the state courts, even when they violate those states' courts. And because of judicial immunity, the federal courts are not um, suing judges um, appropriately. And the oversight, really quickly, the oversights of courts were never, they were not, no one, uh, it was always checks and balances. Now, checks and balances was you have the executive, legislative, and the judicial branches. The checks and balances is that one branch was supposed to check the other branch. Um, you were never supposed to police yourself. That's not a check and balance. Um, policing yourself, it, it doesn't work. The, the founders understood, the uh, Federalists understood that didn't work. But however, in the, in the, in the courtrooms, in the family courts, uh, we don't have the legislators or the executive branch doing a checks and balances on the judicial branch in your states. Uh, and the federal governments are not touching state issues. Um, so even if there's constitutional violations. So what's happening is that they have appointed committees, judicial committees, uh, to police themselves. But as we know, um, the majority of cases, maybe a thousand a year, um, maybe only one out of a thousand will a judge be seriously considered for, you know, for being um, taken out of office or to have violated their, their oath of office. Um, but again, the uh, policing yourselves just simply historically, it doesn't work. Um, mm -hmm. Checks and balances on um, the legislative and the executive branch was supposed to checks and balances the judicial branch, but we don't have that. And also checks and balances is the federal government was supposed to under um, what was called um, uh, enumeration, enumeration of the federal government's powers. The, the federal government was supposed to go in and protect the individual. Now, the 14th Amendment, life, liberty, and property was called, is called a unnumerated human right. And the unnumerated human right, part of the Declaration of Independence, unalienable rights, um, is that the federal government under the 14th Amendment actually got the right to, um, to protect citizens from being violated by their states and state law and state courts. And mm -hmm. to be able to reverse these decisions in the federal courts, that was the original design. 
But if you have a family court issue, you're not going to be heard in the district court or your federal circuit court. You're only going to be able to have your decisions reversed in the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court only takes court cases that they believe will have a national significance. Now, there was a deal made, which is very important for people to know. The 14th Amendment, under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, says that Congress has a, uh, is able to enact, have a congressional act, to actually uh, to force a case in the United States Supreme Court to be heard. And uh, according to Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, uh, where it says that there's a congressional act of Congress can actually en enforce the 14th Amendment, is the federal government is not um, hearing um, uh, violations of, uh, of family court matters of constitutional rights in the federal courts or even in the United States Supreme Court unless the, an act of Congress happens. And now the act of Congress is the Congress, which is important for people to know, there, you have two different things. You have um, equal protection, right? And um, equal protection um, is one of the uh, is one of the is one of the protections under the Fourteenth Amendment. So just one of them, equal protection. Mm -hmm. Now the the deal with the federal courts and the state courts, as well as the uh, uh, legislator, federal legislation, and so forth, they made a deal that the United States Supreme Court will only hear issues of equal protection violations against the Fourteenth Amendment but they won't hear violations from an individual of your life, liberty, or property um, from a state court. Um, so you could have all, you can have, uh, you know, the states can go in and have, um, you know, as many children taken away and put into foster care as they want. Mm -hmm. um, and the federal government won't overturn that. However, if there's, an equal, if there's a problem of equal protection, such as homosexual marriage, and the, the, mm -hmm. the idea is that there's, you know, does one interest group have equal protection, or um, a Troxel and Granville, which was a grandparents' right issue, mm -hmm. those, both the uh, homosexual case in 2005, uh, that was, went through Texas to eventually the Supreme Court, as well as Troxel and Granville uh, in 2000 on uh, the United States Supreme Court, those were issues of equal protection, because what the, uh, what the fight was is that, hey, the, the legislators or the act of Congress or the United States Supreme Court heard those cases in family law because they said special interest groups were being or minority groups were being affected like the homosexual community, LBGT community, or the grandparents community, and they didn't have the equal protection that parents have. So it's a full on attack against parents. Um, mm -hmm. And there is no oversight. There's no, um, uh, there's no cameras allowed in the courtroom, even though these are open courtrooms. Um, and the uh, uh, and the United States Supreme Court is not going to hear custody matters uh, without an act of Congress. So there is no protection, constitutional protection for the family unit um, in regarding to juvenile courts or family courts today. There is no protection, and the courts won't. There's no checks and balances. Huh. Yeah, we all need to know that. That's very important. Um, I'm so glad I had you on. Um, you gave us me so much information i think my hand is is exhausted from writing i was been taking so many notes <laughs> um uh, is there anything else you'd like to add yeah so what happened was uh and recently in, in 2020 
there was a narrowing of the Rooker-Feldman doctrine. Now, the Rooker-Feldman doctrine is two particular cases in the United States Supreme Court, I believe, that actually created a doctrine. Now, the doctrine said that uh, Rooker-Feldman doctrine says if you have a family court issue or juvenile issue, um, that um, you cannot um, relitigate res judicata or you cannot relitigate these issues in the federal courts, even if there's a constitutional violation. Uh, and they use this uh, Rooker-Feldman doctrine. Now, since the 1975, uh, 1980s, uh, 100% of uh, all uh, of all constitutional issues and state violations in the in the family courts have been um, dismissed in the in the federal courts by the Rooker-Feldman doctrine, and I believe in 1990 we had as much as 500 cases that were brought before the federal court that they dismissed. They didn't even hear them based on this Rooker-Feldman doctrine. Well, in 2020, the United States uh, or one of the main courts, I believe it was the United States Supreme Court, actually said that the Rooker-Feldman doctrine can no longer be used as a blank a blanket way to dismiss cases in the federal courts, but it has to be narrowly tailored to the actual Rooker or the Fieldman particular cases. So uh, uh, there's a particular article right, written by the American Bar Association. Now they have their own website and they wrote, um, it's called Federalization of the Family Court. And they actually bring in the cases of a hundred, uh, you know, uh, Supreme Court cases that deal with the, uh, with the family unit and, um, you know, juvenile court, uh, family court, in all matters. And uh, Troxel and Granville is one that really talks about making the parental rights a fundamental right. Um, and so now that because of all these court cases, we have enough court cases um, by the United States Supreme Court where now we actually have a right to bring our state grievances of constitutional violations by the family court and juvenile court and, and um, your rights being terminated at the state level. We have a right now to bring it into federal court. So it may be just a matter of time Mm -hmm. um, before the federal courts, but the federal court wants a bifurcating of, uh, of, of issues that are brought before the federal court. And the federal court used to claim that there is no federal laws regarding custody. So if all custody situations are to be handled by, by states in their own state, uh, in their own state courts and, um, and any constitutional violations were not still not heard, um, in the federal courts because they claimed that they didn't have jurisdiction, um, because of the, uh, because they didn't have any laws, federal laws regarding family court. However, um, when Troxel and Granville, that last one, what it did is it got a lot of people mad in the legislation, the federal legislators were very mad because what it does is um, the United States Supreme Court is starting to meddle within the family or basically starting to protect our rights in, in, the, in the United States Supreme Court. And when you bring a case to the United States Supreme Court based on the supremacy clause of the constitution, um, and the United States Supreme Court being the, the, the Supreme Court of the land, um, you start making these a federal issue because the federal courts can't ignore these state violations anymore. Um, so, you know, in the, in the state violations could be anything from um, uh, child protection services, human services, uh, we are, um, uh, paternity fraud, you know, where uh, um, people are paying for children um, that are not their child after a divorce, even after, you know, in, in so in a lot of this, so what happens, these state violations are finally getting brought up into the federal courts. So there's a good chance, um, there's a possible chance that if somebody brings up one more case in front of the United States Supreme Court, and basically, you know, we, can, we might be able to end that bifurcation and have the federal start going in and protecting human rights once again, because that was the original design of the 14th Amendment was to protect the human rights of blacks from lynch mobs. That was the original mm -hmm. design of the 14th Amendment. 
Um, but now it can, it, it was written to be, is written generally for all people. And there's a possibility now because of these cases um, that we may see the federal government and uh, federal legislation starting to kind of come in and start to police this stuff as, a, as the state violations over the family just become a complete mess. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, this, this was good. Um, I did see a case in Philadelphia where um, a CPS caseworker took kids away from this mother and uh, she finally got them back. But now the kids want to sue. Uh, I don't know if you caught that on, it was on Facebook, but um, the, the kid w was going to start suing the, I guess the family court yeah the, the well yeah well he uh, yeah they can start there there and this is happening a lot because now um like there was there was a um uh, a, a an important case that a um a child went to the school counselor and said that hey you know what my mom and dad make me to go to church too much because they were they're they making them go to a couple times a week go to like bible studies and the uh and the board of education jumped in and actually said well this is abuse to the child making the child go to go to you know bible studies too much and so what happened was the state ended up um suing the parents uh or the child ended up suing the parents through the state and this, the state made a decision that the the parents were only allowed to bring their child to church only twice a week and they actually had and if they didn't sign that then the child was going to be put in foster care so a lot of this is part of these children given more constitutional rights now children having constitutional rights sounds good Right. And, and a lot of people try to use that and say, well, a child has constitutional rights to their parents, biological parents. But that's not the case. The children having independent rights of the parents um, and having their own constitutional rights means that the state is able to exercise the child's constitutional rights. So it's really part of the parents portray doctrine where the, the nation is a parent of the child because um, somebody's going to have ward over the state. Either the parents are going to have the constitutional rights over the state or sorry, the, either the parents could have constitutional rights over their own children or the state is going to have rights over the children. Mm -hmm. One person has that final say. And as it is, stands right now, um, the state is trying to empower children with these constitutional rights. Um, and it sounds wonderful and it sounds great, but it's not because who's exercising those constitutional rights? Well, you know who is? It's the guardian ad litem or the attorneys that appointed to that child. And that guardian ad litem and that attorney, they actually work for the state, right? They're licensed through the state. They work for the court. They work for the judge. So that guardian ad litem um, is definitely not going to hear the voice of the child. And that child is not allowed to have a voice in most cases because they consider that child too immature to be able to, to exercise their own constitutional rights. So um, a lot, like I said, so you're going to see uh, children who are going to start suing, right? <laughs> having the right to sue, having the right to sue the state, the church, maybe the board of education or the school. Um, they're going to start being able to have the ability to sue um, just as much as well as adults can sue, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, but this is really a bad thing because this is part of the segregation of the family unit mm -hmm. rather than being underneath the patier, the father, um, and the father exercising control and rights of the family. Now we have the, um, like I said, the segregation where the women has, um, for a while now, has had 100% constitutional rights. And coverture laws were finally addressed by the United States Supreme Court around 1975 as saying, you know, coverture law is now dead. And that was actually an official, like a, basically an official statement by the United States Supreme Court. And so um, they don't look at coverture laws or the men having that, um, 
that authority over the wife anymore. Um, before, a long time ago, under coverture laws, if the wife broke a law, um, the man had to go to jail because mm -hmm. coverture laws said that she was an extension of the husband and um, he had to pay the penalty if his, if his wife or his children broke a law or stole something. The man was held responsible and if he couldn't pay, he went to jail even though he may have been innocent and only in extreme cases where the, where, where a woman would go to jail. Um, but in, in children were under property rights. So they really didn't be taken away. Children did not start taking, be taken away until uh, around the 1890s, uh, early 1900s, mm -hmm. as the state started giving, um, uh, trying to look into the abuse of children. Mm -hmm. um, so again, like this, this whole thing is, it sounds wonderful. Uh, child's rights, child's constitutional rights, best interest of the child. These sounds wonderful, but in actuality, it's nothing more than the state exercising control over your children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they're making it sound like this is a great idea. <laughs> yeah, and the and the and the and, uh, United Nations, right, under international law and international treaty, they've been practicing this since uh, around I think 1970s, 1975s, under the UNCRC. It was a, a best interest of the child standard was actually designed under women's rights under the uh, UN. So, and then later on, it, they had their own rights. Children had their own rights under the Convention of the Rights of the Children under, uh, under best interest of the child standards. But at first it was considered, children were considered, uh, best interest of the child considered under women's rights or women's um, uh, protecting women's rights. Uh, but long story short, um, the, the, the woman and the child separating from the father is really an attack on coverture laws. It's really an attack on the, the father as the, the head of the family unit. Um, and again, uh, as long as the, the father is not considered head of the unit, um, everyone has their own constitutional rights. And that just means that the state can come in really and, and take your children whenever they want. And the federal government will not protect you at all. So is it beneficial for people to be married or live together and just have kids out of wedlock. Yeah, so right. So when you have a child out of wedlock, according to the Bible, uh, and we see this, I want to say Genesis 34, the woman was given 100% custody of that child because the man, according to coverture laws, right, the man never uh, was assigned authority or had authority over the woman. And since the child was part of the woman's body, right, when she had the child, he never established authority, legal authority, right, under coverture laws, legal authority over that child. Mm -hmm. So though he had a human right issue, he never had a legal issue in pretty much all of history. Mm -hmm. And this comes from the basic foundations of the Bible, where um, Jacob, I believe it was Jacob, um, and there was, a, uh, there was a girl named Tamar, and Jacob had some sons, and, and the, the sons started dying off being married to this girl. And so he basically was afraid to have his sons marry this girl anymore to call the Levitical uh, marriage rights of Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, that uh, to be able to a younger um, brother was supposed to marry an older brother if he died, uh, wife, to be able to raise up a seed and inheritance for the older, uh, uh, older uh, brother. Now, what happened was, this is a story in Genesis 34, where uh, Jacob refused to give his children to this lady and she did not, she was childless. And, um, and so because of this, um, she actually dressed as a, as a prostitute and Jacob, when he went into the town, um, he saw his prostitute and he slept with her, got her pregnant and he gave her her, her signet. He didn't have any money on him. So he's like, 
she's like, well, what will you give me to, you know, to, to make sure that you'll come back and you'll pay me? And he goes, well, here's my signet ring and my staff, you know, and a signet ring really was just like nobody else could copy that. Um, and so uh, she was given that. And then, um, uh, but little did Jacob know that that was actually Tamar because probably because of the head covering she was wearing, she wore a veil. Now, later as the story goes, is that he, Jacob sees his daughter-in-law, um, Tamar, pregnant and she's not married. And so Jacob orders her to be burned with fire, like burn her with fire till she dies. And then she's like, she's like, well, the, whoever owns the signet ring and the staff is the child's father then Jacob realized that, that he was the father. And, but um, he was not given the rights to the child. Tamar, the woman, was given rights to the child. And so um, as, as the story goes, um, when you were married under coverture law, as soon as you were married, the child was considered 100% property of the father even after a divorce. However, if you were not married, the child was considered 100% property of the woman because the man never established that authority, legal authority over her. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that as cohabitation started to increase in America, we still have this societal pressure as cohabitation and more wedlocks are being, children are being born out of wedlock. Like we hear the term shotgun wedding, right? right. Shotgun wedding, right? Is that, Hey, you know, you, you, you impregnate a, a, a you know, a daughter and the father comes with the shotgun and makes you marry her, right? This was based mm -hmm. on ex, uh, Exodus 22, 16 and 17, where it says if a man sleeps with an with a with a virgin woman or a woman, I think it's a virgin woman. Oh no, actually, apologies. It says sleeps with a woman who is not betrothed or engaged, and find uh, and the father finds out, he actually has to pay the bride price and has to marry her. Unless the father refuses the marriage, then he still has to pay the bride price for violating the virgin, uh, the virgin, uh, virgin. So um, these uh, this pressure to be able to marry a woman um, if you got pregnant is no longer seen since cohabitation increased since 1980. And what happens was the courts were, um, so men did not, uh, before 1980 really, men when they had a, when there's a child born out of wedlock, they really had no legal right or authority over these children, right? But mm -hmm. however, since the increase of children being born out of wedlock and also with women saying, well, we want the, in a state saying, well, we want the right for um, uh, child support, Right. Well, the father is like, well, if you get child support, then I get to visit the child. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there was that balance of, well, this is, you know, this is um, heretical for the state to say that a father has to pay child support, but the, um, born out of wedlock. Um, but he's not able to visit the child because it was born out of wedlock. So as and as the child started getting more constitutional rights, the states started to really doctrinally or through common law started to give unwed fathers, right, the right for visitation or even sometimes custody. Now, the problem is, is a lot of these women were either date raped or they were just raped. And these men were going to jail and these men were in jail. They still had a legal constitutional rights, according to the common law, to be able to have visitation and custody of these children. And, um, and that was not always the case before women was raped. Uh, and I mean, and he was guilty, found guilty of rape in the court of law. Um, uh, there was, uh, that man had no rights to that child, but that's recently changing, um, as more children are born out of wedlock and, and fathers are given more rights. Now the state to try to prevent all this stuff from happening is that they're starting to make paternity tests illegal, um, for children, um, either born in, born in marriage or out of marriage after a divorce or a separation. Um, they're trying to make it illegal because what is easier for the state to assign, um, responsibility and child support 
rather than to play the game of, you know, who's the father or let's find the biological father or the biological father should be the one paying child support. It's really whatever the court um, says who's to pay child support. And it's usually um, that last known relationship that that woman had with a particular man or who she was living with when the children were born. Um, and, but again, we're seeing uh, paternity fraud and we're seeing, um, uh, we're seeing these um, men getting um, put in jail and held in contempt of court if they try to prove that a child is not theirs through a paternity test. Wow, that is so, yeah, that's so crazy. You know, it's just getting crazier. It's getting crazier. So the, 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 the problem is that the state, rather than changing its laws back to its original laws, they're like, well, we'll just create new laws right to, to balance out and so they're creating new laws and new laws are getting crazier and crazier and crazier because the state is infiltrating the family unit is violating the privacy rights and the inalienable rights of parents and the state now has so many children right even the national government or the as far as the united states of america as well as uh, england or uh, yeah england and uh, united uk is really really bad but they have so many children now that the the government really doesn't know what to, to do with it and you think there would be an outcry. You think there would be picketing. You think there would be violence out in the street, right? But there's mm -hmm. nothing. We're, we're getting no pushback against the government. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the government has become so powerful with its militia, you know, tanks and weapons to a point that we, the people, don't think that we can even overthrow the government if our government becomes too tyrannical. And um, it's just to a point where we have become ostracized and... Um, uh, uh well i'm trying to think of that we have basically become I'm trying to think of this word circumcised um uh you know being it was literally we became circumcised and remember the men were responsible for the uh, protection and provision of the family unit since mm -hmm. men have accepted the feminism laws that have come in through these the state and uh, federal governments uh uh, since they've accepted that, men are no longer men. So the people who should be really providing and protecting and in, in, in the streets are not women. They should be the men. Um, historically, it always been the men, and it should be the men who are doing it. But the men have been so feminized, um, they allow themselves to become so feminized that, they're, uh, that men simply are not, are not protecting their family unit anymore. So they're more like, I'll have a child either in wedlock or out of wedlock and I'll just move on to the next, you know, move on to the next person. And the state is because the state gets the authority of that child, the state is, and it gets money from that through child support entitled for DNA. They're more than likely because cash for kids, um, they're more than likely to empower the segregation of the family unit and to give the woman more custody um, because men, 90%, I think as the court says, 90% of men who actually get primary custody usually do not ask child support from the woman traditionally. Um, only the women who get um, custody traditionally are the ones who are asking for child support. And I believe that's in 90% of the cases, men who get primary custody um, are not asking for that child support in the, in the courts. I wish that was my case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, oh it is. Uh, well, it's like I said, this is, it's really all really a fight against patriarchy, right? The, uh, mm -hmm. This whole thing is a design is that in the patir, right? The father. It's a design to the only way to dis, the, the government knew that the only way to dismantle the family was to take away the rights of the father, right? They didn't have to worry about taking the rights of the mother because the mother never had authority or rights over the family unit um, historically, right? And children had no rights, obviously, at all. They had no constitutional rights, or else no legal rights. 
Um, but they, the only way for the dismantling of the family unit was to, to attack the, the structure of the father. And uh, as they give the woman the right to initiate divorce without uh, unilaterally, without proving any kind of a divorce, abuse, or abandonment, um, uh, women by nature, men by nature want to control women. It's a natural thing because they want to be leaders or because of that part of that, the curse of woman where the man shall rule over you. So man have always, was always naturally, instinctively tries to control women either physically because it talks about the, in first Peter three, that women are, uh, that women are the weaker vessel, um, probably referring to the outer shell of a, a boat. Right. But all in all, women are, are weaker um, are, and men are stronger. And so a tendency men has a tendency to use abuse as a physical abuse as a way to control the women. Um, this has historically always been the case. But this is like this is the reason from this is because of the, the curse of woman of Eve um, of, you know, giving that apple to Adam. And then uh, God saying to Eve, you know, does you shall desire his husband, but, you know, you shall desire husband, but he shall rule over you. And this whole um, and this this whole thing that we're in today is that the society has learned when you dismantle the patriarch patriarchal structure of the home, um, the, it, it dismantles the family. You know they need they need they need to have a chief in every family, and that chief historically, as well as by design, has always been the man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all falling apart. The whole family unit's falling apart. And this is part of, like I said, Marxism did this in 1917, uh, and the women were given the right to initiate divorces without uh, proving any proof, so you allow no fault divorce. And um, in, in 1917, quickly, is that the number of divorces was five divorces for every one marriage. Um, and those, and in Russia right now, Russia has the highest divorce ratio, even though feminism is not effective in Russia. If you look in Russia, they are not, they are not affected by feminist principles. Um, and but however, the divorce rate in Russia is 60% because ever since 1917 until today, that woman's always had that right to divorce. Because if you think about it, man has always had the desire to conquer, right? Mm -hmm. And women has always had uh, to put up with the, the with this abuse of men. And when women are given the right to be able to divorce men and to move on and to marry somebody else, um if they don't like the authoritative structure that a man has in the home, be the good man or bad man, um, they will have a tendency to leave that structure and to be able to, you know, um, because they're given that right by the state, not by the churches. The churches more historically, women were never given the right to divorce until, um, until parliament came in in 1857. Um, so historically, well, it, it, under this is important for you to know. So under Roman law, under the first century, um, women were given the right to divorce. But the reason why they were given the right to divorce under Roman law, no, you allow no fault divorce, got to practice that, is because of a doctrine that's, that the woman said that, well, the husband is not my authority or my head. My father is my authority or my head. And what happened was she was able to use the authority of her father to actually initiate a divorce against her husband. And that was, became popular in the first century to the third century and, and under Roman. Now remember Roman, they conquered the known world, right? The Eastern known world under um, uh, Greco-Roman laws. So, uh, but the, the whole thing was that, that women didn't have that constitutional right or that right on themselves to divorce, but they believed that they had the, um, the right of their father or the authority of her, her father to be able to initiate a divorce. And 
Uh, long story short, like I said, this is, uh, it, it wasn't until recently where women have, are trying to, what's called egalitarian, right? They're trying to, trying to take away these patriarchal principles, try to make something all equal, right? Balance the egalitarian, mm -hmm. um, equal but different uh, principles. And uh, it just doesn't work in the family unit. You really can't have two equals um, go into a family unit because it'll just end into divorce like this culture is today. Oh, yeah. Well, I totally thank you for coming on and giving us thank all you. this knowledge because this is good to know. I mean, this is stuff that we're not even taught in Bible school, at least when I went. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You won't hear this stuff. But if you look up coverture laws, which is fascinating, you'll hear, you'll hear historical precedents um, as well as the rule of thumb. I think that was based on a coverture law in England as well. But uh, you'll hear pretty much rule the lands under common law in both England and the United States until the 1850s and the women's suffrage movement and the and the and the, you know, the women given more authority, the states coming in and taking that authority of divorce, remarriage, and custody issues away from the church and mm -hmm. giving it to the state governmental officially to know what's best for your family. Mm -hmm. It's only going to get worse. It's good. Yeah, exactly. Well, I want to have you back on again. Yeah, it'd be great. Okay. Well, Slam the Gal is a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again with Michael Sane in the future and other guests. So I thank you again, Michael. Hey, thank you.